Now let's take the Word of God again together this morning and turn to Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter number 4. And we're looking this morning at verses 23 and 24, really as a means to introduce uh, also the subject and the text we'll be looking at in our 1130 hour as well. I want to draw your attention to those two verses beginning there in Acts 4, verses 23 and 24. And as a church today and as a body of believers, I want us to try to really focus in on what is being said here. Uh, the beauty of these words and the beauty of the, uh, the people and the place in which these events are unfolding is certainly something that we ought to take notice of. Acts 4, verse 23, this is, of course, in regard to John and Peter, who we saw last week, they were released. They were given the command to no longer preach, to speak, to teach in the name of Jesus Christ. And so we see this, these first four words, and being let go. They went to their own company and reported all that the chief priest and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is. Our text this morning tells us what these men did after the threats had been given to them. They went back to their own company. It is not a, an expression or a phrase that should be taken lightly. The very first place these men went was back to their own company, back to their own congregation, back to their own fellow believers. This introduces to us a section that runs through the end of the chapter recording believers being united in prayer and in praise. In direct response, and don't miss this, in direct response to the warnings and the threatenings of the Sanhedrin. Warnings against preaching, warnings against teaching, warnings against speaking in the name of Christ. They returned to their own company and were united in prayer and praise. Prayer and praise, not panic, not anxiety, not fear, not worry, not discouragement. In prayer and praise, in their own company. Christ's followers always do best in their own company. Provided that their company is the right company. Provided that their company is fellow believers, fellow Christians, who stand on the authority and they stand on the Word of God, they join themselves together. The greatest evidence that we are, in fact, outwardly a part of the body of Christ 
is when you are a member of the body of Christ. You are part of your own company. This church, as we see from this initial first opposition, all it did was drove that church to more prayer and more praise. We never one time in the book of Acts truly see the church coming apart. We don't see it falling apart or coming apart at the seams. We actually see it being united. Now, are they sinless? No. Do, are there moments that we're going to read about in the book of Acts where they seemingly uh, had some lack of, of faith and they showed some fear? Absolutely. But they had their own company. They had a group of believers that they called their own. They had a group of believers that were servants together with God. Not only in doing the work of the ministry, but doing the work of prayer and praise, serving God who made all things, who's given us all things. As we sang that familiar hymn, How Great Thou Art. This is the God that they're praying to when we see in that second verse when it says, Lord, Thou art God. This was not a group of gathering just for the means of a social fellowship. This was the gathering of their own company. This was the gathering of people who were united together in understanding and standing upon the reality that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And they rejoiced that they had a God that they could pray to. We mentioned this during our prayer meeting this morning, but when threatening times come, when trouble comes, we should take great care that we don't necessarily ask for the trouble or the threat to go away, but that we pray and praise God that he will give us the power to go on with cheerfulness and with courage in the face of the trial, the threat. Peter and John do not go back to their own company and say, we've got to figure out a way to overthrow the Sanhedrin. No, they go back in prayer to the sovereign Lord God. And they praise God that he will see them through. You see, our prayers are often misguided because we're always asking for God to take us away and take us out instead of going back to our own company where we're going to get the greatest encouragement when you're around other believers. How believers who call on the name of Christ make it through this life never coming together with their own company, I will never understand. I will never understand how you are going about it alone. Because we were made to be in a company together. We were made to be part of a body. Peter and John do not pray here, Lord, take away the danger, but Lord, give us grace to continue pressing forward with steadfastness and diligence. Not to fear what man can do. Not to fear the face of man. You know, one of the reasons that we read the Psalms every week is not just so that we have something to fill in our call to worship. We are praying and asking for God's divine aid. 
And we are praying and praising God no matter what has happened to you this week. We are coming together to praise God together. To be united in prayer and praise. The last place there should be a division is amongst God's people. Because we should be united in this prayer and united in this praise. We are dependent upon God's aid, brethren. You may not think you need it, but you're dependent upon God's aid. You're dependent upon Him giving you the strength and the encouragement to go on. What's marvelous in these passages and these verses we're going to read over the next couple of weeks about this gathering together is we see very clearly that God gives evidence that He accepts their prayer. He accepts their praise. We'll look at more in depth next week, but in verses 29 through 31, which we'll consider, we see as they were praying that the place was shaken. That their faith would be established and not shaken. That their faith would become more steadfast, more sure, more certain. God begins to show himself to be even more real to them than he was the day before. God demonstrates not only his power, but our strength, our faith is encouraged when we're together in our own company. They find the Lord God in the midst of the threats. They find the Lord God in the midst of trouble. They find the Lord God so that they might not be frightened. We understand that the circumstances were less than ideal. To my knowledge and maybe someone has this experience, I have never been part of a church where somebody was imprisoned for preaching the gospel and was let go and returned to their own company. But I'll tell you something this morning, if that ever happened to us, how would we respond to that? How would we respond to that man or that woman who simply were, was imprisoned, was questioned because of their stance of preaching Christ? Would they have a company to come back to? A company of people who would be united with them in prayer and praise. That's what this church had. The first century church was not a perfect church. It had its issues. We're going to see when we get to chapter 5, the familiar story of Ananias and Sapphira, the warnings in that are out of this world frightening. But we also see that this church that was united in prayer and praise was a church that was made up of individual believers who were all part of one company. Being let go, they were dismissed from their custody. They were dismissed by the order of the Sanhedrin. They went back to their own brethren. Now again, there's some disagreement over exactly who they went back to. Did they go back to the other apostles? Or did they go back to the 120? Did they go back? Or did they go back to this grand multitude of the 8,000 people that have been added unto the church since we started this study? Let me tell you the beauty about your own company. It doesn't matter if it's two or 8,000. If that's your company of brethren... There's nothing you should look forward to more than being together with your own company. Not because it's some kind of club, but because it is where your faith is strengthened and encouraged. Even if you haven't been threatened this week, 
I can pretty much surmise by looking into the faces of each one of you, when you come in on a Sunday morning, there have been difficulties. There have been troubles. There's been trials. There's been struggles. But yet you come and you come into a group of believers that in some way, shape, or form, we ought to edify one another. We ought to encourage one another in our walk. They went to, they went to that group to communicate not to complain, but that their threatenings that were placed upon them would be for the praise and the prayer of this gathering of brethren. Now, the Bible doesn't say they murmured. It just says they reported. There's nothing wrong with reporting the threatenings. There's nothing wrong with reporting the issue. But look what they did. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now, if we could put ourselves into the narrative, these would have been really deep threats. This is not a minor thing. They are being told with the threat of imprisonment and possible death, if you keep doing this, preaching, teaching, speaking in the name of Christ, there are going to be severe consequences. They went and reported their own company Right? They went back, they said all that had happened, all the threats, all the injunctions, all the commands. No doubt they talked about the interaction that took place, how Peter and John had said, we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. And yet, as they reported it, notice the response. And when they heard that, it's one of the, one of the thousand reasons. I love exposition. And when they heard that, heard what? All that had been told of them, they lifted up their voice to God. There's the prayer. Not panic, not what are we going to do, not this is unfair, not we've got to change our strategy. They lifted up their voice in prayer, their voice to God. I love what Spurgeon was commenting on this passage, and he said, you can always tell a man by his company. Had these people been ungodly, they would have done as the ungodly do when they come out of prison. They would have gone off to their old companions. But they are believers, and so they go to their own company. They didn't run. They went right back to the company and they reported all that had been done. And when they heard the whole report of the apostles, without making any sort of concern, without anything, not being terrified, not being cast down, not being discouraged, they gathered together not to come up with a plot, not to come up with a conspiracy to knock off the ecclesiastical rulers, not to defend, not to avenge. Now let's just say hypothetically, this was all 8,000 people. They could have created quite a disturbance in town. That's not what God's people do. They pray. They pray and pray and pray and pray some more. All while they're praising God. They're not telling God this is unfair. This is unjustified. 
Instead, they go to prayer. Why do they go to prayer? Because they're not afraid? Because they're not anxious? Nothing can be further from the truth. There is that, that they're human. There's the reality of that. But they went to prayer so that they would not be deterred or distracted or detoured by the threatenings. Again, I'm not speaking to everybody today from the standpoint, but how people get through this life on their own as believers is beyond me. By the time we get to the Lord's day, I cannot wait to be here. By the time we get to Wednesday, I cannot wait for Wednesday. Why? Because I'm edified and I'm encouraged. And even this preacher needs to be deterred from the fears and the discouragements and the things that come into my life. I'll never understand it. People have trouble and struggles in their life and they stop going to their own company instead of going to their own company. I just can't be amongst God's people today. What do you mean by that? Isn't that where you want to be? When the threats come, you run to fellow believers who are standing in the same way in which you're standing. Not run away from him. Now we see that their prayer also had a means to an end. They're going to pray specifically that they might speak boldly in the face of these threats. They lift up their voice to God with one accord, being, of course, led and directed by the Holy Spirit of God to lift up their voice to God with one accord. Don't take these matters lightly. This means that they agreed in the substance and the matter of what was being asked for. You know, that's the only reason for the word amen in a prayer, right? It's not just a religiously a religious word we say. If you say amen, you are in agreement with what's being offered. If you don't agree to what's being prayed for, don't amen that. Amen signifies we are with one accord, one heart in what we're asking for. They lifted up their voice to God in one accord. They were completely in agreement as to the substance and to the matter and to what's being ready to be asked for. They ask, and what's the Bible say? And it shall be given. The very words are being expressed to signify that there is zealousness and a desire to be bold is what we'll see. And again, notice as they lift up their voice with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God. It might also be translated, depending on what translation you might have, it might say simply, Lord, our God. But they are addressing God as the Father of Christ as their own God, as a sovereign God. They are rehearsing before God not only what they believe about God, but they are rehearsing that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they know who they're praying to for help and for their hope. I'm not so sure that every time when we pray, we're actually praying with belief. That you're actually praying to a God who is sovereign. 
This is really the first time in the book of Acts we see them using that title of sovereign God. That's what, Lord, thou art God. There is sovereignty being declared in this. The prayer begins with, Lord, thou art God or sovereign Lord. Why do they pray? Why do they begin praying that way? Let me give you the most profound thing you're going to hear all day because God is sovereign. So they prayed in the truth to the God they were praying to. Brethren, I cannot stress to us enough today, it does not make a single difference to a sovereign God in any way, shape, or form, whether men or women like or agree with God's counsel at all. It makes no difference. It makes no difference what a person's opinion is about who God is or what God can do, what God cannot do. A sovereign God is not answering or seeking counsel from anyone else. God doesn't even ask if we agree with his decisions. God's never asked your opinion once about any matter. He's never asked you what you think about this. He's never asked you to think about what you would do they're acknowledging that this sovereign God is going to carry out and to allow whatever he deems fit to carry out. Now, to pray that way, does that mean that they could be praying that ultimately they might lose their lives? Yes. Most of the apostles did lose their life by martyrdom. They were executed for their faith. They did lose their life much like that young man we read about this morning, young William Hunter, that 19-year-old who stood before the councils and said, I will not renounce the name of Jesus Christ, and they burned him at the stake. Why would a man do that, a young man such as 19, take a stand like that and not preserve his own life because he believed in the sovereign God? That's who we prayed to this morning. That's who we lifted up our voice in. We lifted up our voice in prayer to this God. God is sovereign. We find our hope. We find our help. We can expect to find every necessary supply of grace that's needed. We're never promised that it will always be perfectly safe in this world. But we are perfectly safe in a sovereign God. God is God. God is in charge. Not to be irreverent, but it is, it, there, there is no limit to which God is not in charge of. That's why it has baffled me for years and it's baffled some of you that somebody, some will still say today God is sovereign in everything but the salvation of the soul. I just can't understand that thinking process at all. He's sovereign even down to those He chooses, those who have been chosen, elected to salvation, and that's, that is a means of praise to a sovereign God. 
Throughout all sovereignty, God is exalting Jesus Christ. Christ is being exalted. Christ is being lifted high. These early believers were saying, what a marvel this is to know that by the grace and the power of God, those who are in Christ Jesus, as, as Paul would say so eloquently in the book of Romans, are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. Notice that they not only call upon the Lord, thou art God. And again, if these things don't stir us, there's nothing that's going to. Which has made heaven. Just for a moment, let your mind drift away from everything in this world that's trying to distract you and think about what they just said. The God which made heaven. Can you even fathom what it means to be the God that made heaven? Not just the heaven that we think about where the throne of God and where you go when you die. All the heavens, all the universe, everything, this God has made heaven and earth and sea and all that in them is. This is the God they're praying to. This is the belief that this company of believers has such confidence and faith in. A sovereign God. But what does this tell us about a sovereign God? It gives full proof of his omnipotence. Omnipotence means all-powerful. All power is given unto God. God is all-powerful. Not that it's given or granted. He is power. That's who we pray to regardless of the circumstance. Regardless of the threat. So what, what is it that God cannot do if he's all-powerful? If he made all things that are, what is it that he cannot do? If he could make all these things, and yet we struggle with whether or not we can trust him in our threatenings and our sufferings and our struggles. Because let's be honest, we don't like the threatenings, we don't like the struggles, we don't like the afflictions. That's the answer, we don't like it. That's our human nature. We don't like it. And we are, we are rebelling a bit against his sovereignty because when we start to say, I don't like my situation, I don't like my threatenings, I don't like this, we are pushing off what God has sovereignly allowed in our life. And yet this is what this church did. They came together not for the accomplishment of what their purposes were, but for the fulfillment of what his purposes were for them. I believe in this prayer, as we'll see, not only in 1130 today as we continue this thought, but even again next week, you will see there is a submission to whatever God allows in their life. They will take it. Because they know this sovereign God. Everything God is doing, God is doing for the accomplishment of his purposes, for the good of his covenant, for the fulfillment of his promises, all the prophecies for the good of his people, but don't lose sight of the fact for the glory of his own name. God does all things and he does all things well. Prayer is not just about asking God to give you or to remove from you Prayer is about adoration. It's about worship. 
Prayer is worship. Prayer is acknowledging the sovereignty of God. It's acknowledging who he is. It's acknowledging what he has done, what he will do. Sadly, we come to the place where that's often what our prayer is. God, what can you do for me today to make my life better? And yet, with one mouth, one mind, one heart, and one accord, they lift up their voices together and say, God, you are the creator of all things. If you created all things, that means you are in control of all things. You see, there is this reality all merging together here about the calling of God's people coming into one company, how if you are in Christ Jesus, you are in Christ Jesus because of the calling of God. You are in Christ Jesus because of those should not be controversial thoughts of you've been predestinated into this. Right? God has the victory. God is triumphant. And we're going to see later that even when wicked men think that they're doing something to defeat or to destroy the Christ, they're actually doing nothing more than carrying out God's will. Even these threats were a part of the carrying out of God's will. Again, I was greatly helped by some comments from Spurgeon this week, which is very often the case with me. But speaking about these two verses, he says, how strange, how strange this doctrine of predestination comes. They are singing of the wickedness of men and the triumph which God gets over it. And so this is the very sum and substance of the song. That when wicked men think that God's decrees will be forever put away by the destruction of his son, they themselves are then actually doing what God had determined before to be done. The wildest discord makes harmony in the ear of God. Man may be in rebellion against the Most High, but he is still objectively the slave of God's predestination. Let man sin with his free will even to the most extreme length of folly. Yet even then, God has a bit in his mouth and a bridle upon his jaws and knows how to rule and govern him according to his own good pleasure. The ferocity of kings and priests does but fulfill the counsel of God. So when we see even our own government growing more and more ferocious, don't think God's out of control. Just simply know the Bible is saying that the more ferocious they get, the more carrying out of God's counsel they're accomplishing. That sounds great in a theology class. Doesn't it? If I was teaching a group of um, soon-to-be pastors theology, you know what would be happening? They'd all be saying, man, I love the sovereignty of God. I love the reality that God, is, as, as, these, as these kings and rulers grow more ferocious and our persecution grows more intense, that we're, you're, they're carrying out and fulfilling the word of God. Oh, it's great in a theology class. But what about your everyday life? As the world grows ferocious and rulers and kings are trying to shut down the voice of Christ, we're going to look at, at 1130, what God does when man tries to stand up against God. He laughs. 
He laughs. We'll consider verses 25 through 28. We'll see how this unfolds, this rage. How that this very rage against his Christ does nothing more than fulfills and carries out the counsel and the will of God. How you and I, the church of the living God today, should be comforted and have confidence in the true, sovereign, and living God. Brethren, we should be confident today that God is sovereign. And that a company of believers that truly believes in the sovereignty of God, that no matter what the circumstances are, can be united in prayer and praise alike. Because they know the battle is not ours, the battle is the Lord's. Again, it's easy to talk about when we're here together. And when you go out back into the world and you come back again and you're, re, you're, you're reminded again, yes, God is sovereign. Yes, in my struggles. Yes, in my afflictions. Yes, in my threatenings. God is in control. And I hope this morning we'll be encouraged by it as a church, as a body of believers, and that we all can say as we go to our own company, that we can trust fully in this God. Amen.